Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Authors Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Hello and welcome to another episode of the author's podcast. Today, my guest is Douglas Terrell. He is a professional actor, producer and writer. His passion for honouring veterans and their families is evident in the projects he has created. His artistic goal is to make sure that the country does not forget our veterans and always remember their and their families' incredible sacrifice. He's the creator of the critically acclaimed play, The American Soldier, which has performed at notable spaces like the Kennedy Center of Broadway twice and the Library of Congress and for over 10,000 audiences in 16 cities and 12 states. The American Soldier has been invited back to perform at the Kennedy Center this coming Veterans Day week and nominated for an Amnesty International Award. You've seen him on some of your favourite TV shows like The Affair, Mr. Robert, Person of Interest, The Americans and feature films like The Cobbler and The Kindergarten Teacher, which starred Dustin Hoffman and Maggie Glynhall. He was commissioned by the Library of Congress to write his second play, An American Soldier's Journey Home, to commemorate the ending of World War One and recently wrote, directed and produced his TV web series, Landing Home. He's also written hundreds of blogs and columns for many of New York acting magazines, and his acting blog was named one of the top 100 acting blogs for actors. All that said, I should have on the line, Mr. Douglas Torrell. Hi, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Uh, Very good, thank you very much. It's quite an exciting episode for me today because you're the first person who I've spoken to about writing plays. So this this is something something new, something different. So I'd like to start first of all by asking you why you where where your passion for honouring veterans comes from. Um, I think it just came from being a naturally. Um, you know, sympathetic to to people who are struggling in many different aspects of life. Um, I, that's probably what leads many people into the acting profession. We tend to be, uh, I like to say, athletes of the heart. Um, so when we were heavily into the Middle East, you know, both the UK and the United States, right after 9-11, um, and we started reading stories. I started reading stories in the newspapers about vets coming home and 
on multiple deployments, struggling with the financial problems, struggling with PTSD, suicide, which was just starting to be talked about back then. It started to bother me a little bit that here in America, at least, we were all going on in our daily lives, buying coffee, going to the mall, and and really just watching the war as a as a video game on TV, yes. and not not really understanding that there were many families um, abroad. I mean, all over globally, definitely, but definitely here in the U.S. that were being um, affected by this conflict and who were being deployed. And I just so I thought. I would try to use my talents as an actor and kind of give a true awareness of what veterans go through and what their families go through um, of many different um, parts of, of our country and, um, and and say thank you to our veterans because I wanted people to not, it was everyone was always saying thank you for our service and we should remember our servicemen, but no one was really doing anything about it. Um, mm. And it was just it started to feel hollow, um, at least for me it did. So I kind of took on this project and I'll be honest, I never thought that it would be, it would have the legs that it had, that it had, uh, that it has right now. It's obviously it's, it's taken a life of its own. Yeah, no, definitely. And so you, you were reading stories, it, it touched you and you were, you were thinking, okay, so no one's really sharing these stories or, or, you know, giving the, yeah. the veterans their, the, you know, the credit that's due. So what happened next? How did you get started? Well, so I, um, I first, first thing I started doing is talking to people about these stories. I would say, hey, did you read the story in the newspaper the other day? And then I, that and people would say, yeah, not really. And so that said, that got, that got me going, right? That kind of started my engine, just talking to people about reading the stories. So then I decided, you know what, I'm going to go the, the original idea was to go to create a play based around the American Revolution and mm. to kind of remind everybody that the greatness that we are today is because of our servicemen and our servicewomen and their families and, and how it all started. Yeah. So I would go to the New York Public Library and I would just start, you know, literally, I mean, it's hard to believe that you don't do that anymore, but and I would go through the card catalog and, and get a book. <laughs> it was only about, I guess, you know, 12, 13 years ago, but... It's amazing how things have changed now. Um, but I would get a book out. You go to the New York Public Library. You know, you, you put in, you fill in a card, and then you you'd look for. They they would have like a computer there, and you can type in um, um, letters and diaries from the American Revolution. Mm. And so I would get these books, and they were literally just books filled with letters from veterans who fought in the Revolutionary War. And most of them was pretty boring, to be honest with you. But every once in a while, you would read across something that was really interesting. You know, it was really fascinating. And there was two veterans during the Revolutionary War that really documented their stories, um, Ebenezer Fox and Joseph Plum. And there's been books written by them. So I started kind of, you know, reading books that were written about uh, by them. Hmm. And I would Xerox these. And then I said, you know, I wonder if there's any more letters about veterans. And of course, there is. Um, it's it's an endless drop in the sea there's books from you know when you when you research war you can you can go in so many different directions you can go into race color religion uh, gender i mean it's just it's conflict uh, specific battles specific issues within a battle you know it's, so it's there's a yeah. plethora of information regarding war but i i started just reading more books containing more um, letters 
that were written by veterans and their family members that people have, you know, um, compiled and, and put into books. And I started just getting fascinated with the idea of, of the, the stories and the subject. And I started to feel a lot of common through lines. And the first one was that um, even from the revolution, you know, a lot of our veterans weren't given the respect and they weren't given the, um, they, they weren't appreciated after the conflict had ended. Yeah, um, yeah. We, the country, even after the American Revolution, we, the America was ready to end the revolution. We were signing treaties with England and pe- a lot of people don't know this, but in my research, you know, they were calling George Washington a traitor because he was, he wanted to end conflicts with England. So it's hard to believe that now because no one really knows <laughs> that. They were really calling him a traitor because he wanted to, you know, he understood that, you know, we couldn't fight a European war forever and we couldn't fight England forever, that we needed to truce and we needed to go west. So um, I, I started getting fascinated with, with this one first when this first through line that, you know, our veterans weren't being taken care of. And they weren't being appreciated. And that was true in the Civil War. There, and after the Civil War, they were promised um, the, both the North and the South promised many veterans. They were promised payment and they never received their payment. Um, a lot of them ended up becoming they would fight for the country. They were promised things and then they ended up either finishing their lives as indentured servants or um, basically destitute and broke. And then the World War One was the same thing. And, and so I became really just, you know, engrossed with this idea of, you know, our history. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where it all started. And um, I collected, you know, thousands of letters and, and, you know, I didn't know what to do with it at first. I was just basically I had a pile of letters and no one knew what to do with it. I just kept talking about it and I kept researching it <laughs> and, and was driving my wife nuts and, and <laughs> my friends nuts. And they were like, you know, good luck with that, man. <laughs> I don't know what you want to do with that, you mm-hmm. know, because when you tell somebody, he's like, you know, I, I was on another interview and I said, it's kind of like, you know, writing about civil rights in, in the United States, you know, I mean, where do you start? Yeah. I mean, what part of the story do you tell? I mean, it's, you know, you can go back from, you know, the 1600s when you start telling that story. Mm-hmm. And veterans is just as deep and it's just as wide, you know, so. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how it started. I mean, that's how the whole process really started. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. Okay, so that's really interesting. So so you did research. You did a lot of research, reading around. It's a topic that interested you. Yeah. And then because you've got a background, you are uh, an actor as well. How did you how did it how did you then come to the idea of actually writing the the American soldier? So when I had, you know, I had I got to a point where I, I had done enough research for about close to four or five years, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. I mean, I just I became this this itch that I couldn't stop scratching. I just mm. whenever I. Uh, so here I live in New York. So whenever in New York, I was auditioning near the public library. If I had dead time at that time, I didn't have kids. And and so um, uh, we're going back a little bit. But so I would literally go into the New York public library and I'd spend an hour, an hour and a half um, and I would do research. And if then if I had some if, if I had some dead time, which is very common for, you know, actors mm. here in New York, when you have dead time auditioning, you. You know, sometimes you have an audition at 11 o'clock and then you have an audition at uh, three o'clock. So you're not going to come home. So you 
you're stuck in the city in a way, so you, you, you find things to do. So I would go to the New York Public Library. I thought it was a great way for me to, you know, to kill time. So when I had all when I had all these letters, I just started talking to. At the time, I thought it was going to be a multi-character play. I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I want to create a play, right? I wanted to tell this story. I didn't know what it was. So I would talk to director friends and I would talk to actor friends and just the Tenth Cent version. I got kind of referred to a a very well-known playwright named Craig Lucas. He he wrote the the play Prelude to a Kiss, which was done by was made into a film, and so I said, you know what? Let me let me take a playwriting class. Um, I don't know how, how to be a playwright. I'm really good with research. I think as an actor, you have to love research and you have to love history, because um, if you're any character you play, if you're an actor worth its salt, you're going to research where that character comes from and what are his, you know, his his what what is his environment? Yes. And to, to really understand what his needs are and his goals are, um, good or bad. Um, so when I got this playwriting class, I shared the story. And I had, at the time, I had already Xerox really interesting stuff. I had a lot of boring stuff, you know, but I also had a lot of really interesting stuff. And so whenever I had a chance to read the interesting stuff, I would read it. And it mm-hmm. always captivated people's interest. The, you know, the, the really interesting stuff really grabbed people. They're like, wow, that's really fascinating. Where's that from? And I would say, uh, it's from the revolution. Like, wow, that's fascinating. Where's that from? And I'd say it's from Vietnam or it's from the Civil War. Wow, I never heard of that stuff before. So when I told Craig Lucas, he said, you know, I spoke to him privately and I said, look, I'm really having trouble finding a director who knows how to help me with this thing. Because at the time I hadn't met with a bunch of directors and they were just, you know, they were clueless. In fairness mm-hmm. to that, it was just a, stack of veteran letters you know what do you do with it yeah he said i think what you have doug is i think you have a one-man show and i said oh that's that sounds terrifying (laughs) 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 a one-man show he goes no i think i I think no one's going to be able to tell the story like the way you're going to be able to tell it just from listening to you talk about it i think you need to find a way to tell this as a one-man show and so that was the first seed that kind of pointed me into a direction. And I, then I went on to another process of interviewing more directors. Still one, no one really knew what to do with it. And just to be fair, I think I can't, I lose track of time because it's been a mm-hmm. while now, but there was a point of such extreme frustration that I threw all the letters into the trash can. Oh. And my wife pulled them out and she, and you know, I was basically whining like a, you know, like a <laughs> baby girl and, and, um, or baby boy. And, and she said, look, stop, pouting like you know i was like no one else would do this is stupid i'm wasting all my time i've got all these letters i just just, you know it becomes you become obsessive when you're trying to create a project it becomes really obsessive and you can't see the the light at the end of the tunnel you get really frustrated and what i didn't realize is you know the first uh, the first step of a thousand a thousand miles is always the first step i said okay let me let me try to my wife said why don't you grab one letter that you're really passionate about and let's see if you can um, create a monologue out of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, let me do that. So just create a monologue, memorize it, do what you know how to do best and show some directors. So that's what I did. I memorized one letter from the Iwo Jima a conflict in the second world war. And that was really connected to, and, and um, my wife said, I mean, so I started interviewing directors and I found one director who said, wow, that's really, that's really beautiful. Mm. You have any more of that stuff? And I said, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> quite a few of this stuff. He goes, well, why don't you show me something else? Let's meet in a couple of weeks and let's show, some, show me something else. And that was really, that was a very powerful learning lesson for me because I've shared this multiple times, but it's much easier to sell a product than it is to sell an idea. And what I was trying to sell before then was an idea. I wasn't really trying to, I didn't have a product to show someone. And so by having a monologue that I had memorized and crafted and worked, I had a product that I could show someone, right? It wasn't an idea now of stack of letters. It wasn't subjective. Mm -hmm. It was more concrete. Mm -hmm. They can look at it and say, I like that. I don't like that. I don't believe with that. I believe in that. And that was a really powerful uh, lesson, not only as an artist, but as a, as a producer and as an individual, I was, I was like, okay, now I know I have to create product here. Yes. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like, and share this channel. So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Douglas Turrell, who is the creator of the critically acclaimed play, The American Soldier. And we've just explored how we got to the point of coming up with the the format of it being a monologue and how to turn a, an idea which was a little bit woolly a little bit hazy but into something much more concrete and tangible as you say so that was a brilliant idea from your your wife then uh, Douglas to to yeah. take a letter and just to really focus in on it and then what happened after Wait, that was, after you... and that same you know that same mm. lesson it, it was really kind of an epiphany for me and I was I was mm. able to realize that was much easier than I thought, you know, because uh, I was a good, I'm a good actor and I was always really good with these type of material. I, you know, I studied with a gentleman named Wynn Hanman. He's a legendary acting teacher here in New York. He's, he's taught everybody. When I say everybody, I mean everybody from <laughs> Justin Hoffman to, to uh, Robert De Niro and many solo show artists have come out of his class because of the way he works. Um, he always works organically and he would always, you know, he would give you material and he would say, well, what does that character want? You know, how does he walk? What, what are his dreams? What are her dreams? What's the letter to the world? So he organically taught us how to create characters. And so a lot of the material that he would always give me when I was in class, we used to study in Carnegie Hall, uh, which was a beautiful place to study. Um, and right cat and his class was one couple doors down from where Marlon Brando used to live at because Carnegie Hall back then used to be a um, used to be residential yeah and so a lot of the material that he I was really good with was war material uh, soldier material he had a thing called company K he would always and there are these letters written by this World War II veteran and uh, he would give them to me and he would always tell me you know that this stuff fits you really well um, and so you know, I, I, I laugh now because I, I should have known right away that this was going to be my calling. After I created that monologue and I showed him another monologue and I was able to do that process really well, I said, you know, I said, hey, Patrick, his name was Patrick Lillis. He's, and he was known as being really good with solo show artists. I had reached out to other people. You know, another important lesson is there that is that whenever someone would tell me no, I would always, and I can't remember who taught me this, but they, I think it was Craig Lucas, but he said, if they tell you no, Doug, ask them, okay, they may not be right for it, but ask them if they know anybody else who is. Yes. And that was, and I did that a lot. I, I mean, I would get no's. I said, oh, well, appreciate your time. Um, do you know anybody who might be interested in this project? And mm -hmm. I would get leads. I would get leads. Mm -hmm. People were kind enough to say, 
well, you should reach out to this theater company. They kind of do this kind of material. And then when they would tell me no, and they would say, you should reach out to this theater company. And then mm-hmm. eventually, that's how I found Patrick. I reached out to someone who basically gave me the name of a theater company. And she had told me, we're kind of not really producing any new work, but I know a director who does a lot of solo show work. And that's how they gave me Patrick's name. So that's always an important lesson that really don't take no as a permanent answer. Take it as a per, as a temporary opinion. <laughs> I like that. Don't yeah. take no as a as a as your permanent answer. Take it as a temporary opinion. I love opinion. that. And yeah. and I'll share how I got to the Kennedy Center. But yeah, a lot of times we get afraid. We're so terrified of the word no. Yes. We're really yeah. not stepping back and looking at it. It's just a two letter word. It's not it's not a death sentence. You know. Mm. but and especially as artists you know we're always terrified of rejection mm. but I yeah so yeah, in, in, in any business I think um when you're yeah it's one of those things you have to learn how to handle and I'm sure there are the books out there on it about you know no is not no it's no for now it's not no to you as a person just to the idea but it's okay because there's someone else out there that will say yes and you've got to get through the no's in order to get to the yeses but it can be quite crushing for some people who just don't know how to handle they see it as rejection but it, it's, it's it's feedback it's just an opinion yeah. as you say yeah yeah no and you start you know and, and when you overcome the no's you start realize it start it becomes if you really pay attention to it, you start learning that the more you can be courageous and withstand more no's, mm. it becomes a number game. The more yeses you're going to get. Absolutely. Uh, you're going to get more no's than you are yeses, but you just need one. Mm. You just need one yes. And, and you know, uh, for all the directors to turn me down, one said yes, and that's all I needed is one. Um, yeah. I didn't need 10. I didn't need 20. I needed one. Yeah. So I, I told him, I said, hey, Patrick, you know, I've done two letters for you. And at this time I was paying him, you know, and he was kind of like a hired gun. So, I, you know, he was very kind and he was very supportive of what I was doing. But I didn't really feel like he was committed as I was, you know, which was fine. I was just happy to find someone that would, <laughs> to, to go in a room and let me do these letters. You know, I said, would you be interested in working with me and maybe like helping me craft like a 20 minute version of this? You know, and so we, he said, yeah, I, I think I would be, you know, obviously we talked numbers and, and, you know, and we, and I was willing to pay him because at this time I just wanted to, I had, I wanted to create something of what I had and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to create a play out of, that was the goal, just to create a play. You know, I, I wanted just to have say, okay, I worked on this for all these years. I finally was able to create a play out of it. Yeah. Um, and that was the ultimate goal. And he said, yeah, let's do that. I said, I'm really interested in that. Um, you know, I can do that. And so we did that. So, you know, we worked like for six weeks and I brought in a bunch of different stuff. He said no to some stuff. I, I took his feedback and, and we were able to eventually to condense a 20 minute version and we worked on it. You were listening to the author's podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like, and share this channel. So then we had this play, this 20-minute version of this play, and I said, let me invite, like, five people that I know in the, in the business and show it to them. Mm. You know, that was my first audience. And um, I basically paid for an audience because I hired a room. I paid for a room. My pet, And, you know, my director gave me another important lesson. He goes, well, if you really want to do this, you need to book a room and then book it now. 
this way you can't procrastinate and, and, and not do it. Yeah. And so I did that. So, and so literally that's, I, was, I can't remember when, but it was like very soon when we met, we, I booked the, the room for like six weeks down the road. He says, now that's booked. So now you have to bring people in there, uh, which is a really important acting lesson. You know, you had to, you know, book the room, um, create the, create the content and then fill the room. It's a great exercise for all artists to do. And uh, so I asked, I brought my wife, some other couple friends. She knew some people in a couple of boards of um, a couple of theater companies. And I knew some other literary people. And so they came and they saw it. And so he says, well, let's, if we're going to do this, he said, you need to get an army trunk. So let's get an army trunk. So I got on eBay and I got an <laughs> army trunk, you know, and he helped me craft it. And, and so I found an army trunk and then, so we were off, you know, we kind of had a play, a content. And when I did it for those five people, um, it wasn't very good. There was moments they were good, but there was moments they was kind of, you know, it wasn't balanced. I had a lot of men. I didn't have any female. I didn't have any, um, any other genders either. And so that was one of the feedbacks we got from the audience. But the, one of the things that was really interesting after that play is that I think we all felt it in the room. There was a voice that was starting to speak out of the play. Mm. And everyone kind of latched onto it. And, and even me and my director said, I remember saying after everyone left the room and we sat down, kind of had a, a powwow together. And I said, I don't know, there was something really, maybe it's just me, Patrick, but I felt like something was speaking louder than the play itself. Did you kind of get that same sense? He goes, yeah, I got that same sense, man. He said, I felt like something was trying to come out. We just weren't really helping it. So I said, you want to work on it anymore? He goes, yeah, let's do it some more. Let's work on it for about another, you know, couple of weeks. Let's get some balance in this play. This play has no balance. You need to find some women. You need to find a couple of children. You know, you're very one-sided. Let's see if that helps it. And when he told me that, I was really, it was not the less, that's not what I wanted to hear. You know, I didn't want to hear the word more research. <laughs> um, but I did that. We fast forward, we were able to craft it. And, and then he says, well, go get a, you know, go to a costume shop, get an army shirt, you know, get some army boots, you know, kind of let's keep building on what we have and let's go find a festival and let's just do it for a festival. And I could even get a festival, to be honest with you, to say, say yes to me. None of the festivals were really interested in me or in the project. They just weren't interested in, in a veteran. So I, 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 a lot of the festivals would say no to me. And so when I finally was able, I can't remember how I got to this one festival. I, again, one of the festivals who told me no, I said, you know, whenever, if, or if anything opens up, please let me know. I love to do the play for you. And this one festival, I think it was called the One-on-One -on -one Bowery Poetry Festival, they had someone who dropped out and she said, if you're still interested in doing this festival, I'd love to have you. And you just have to be off book, meaning you have to be memorized. And I said, yeah, I, I'm off book, you know. So that was my first opening, you know. I, I think I applied to like 10 festivals and they all, no one, some of them didn't even reply back to me. So what does off book mean? You, have, in... to be, you have to have it memorized. Okay. You have to have the material memorized. Mm. But basically, they don't want someone going up there just reading to you. Right. Right. They want you performing performing mm. for the audience. Mm. Which you were doing anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing anyway. I finally got a yes to this festival, and I was really excited, nervous as well. She said, you know, I think you'd be a great fit for – we're going to be performing it on Memorial Weekend. This fits Memorial 
this fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's just 20 minutes. You're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sandwich you with another girl who's doing a play about her and her father. Complete contrast of what my material was about, you know. But she says basically, the person who you're replacing dropped out. And so I said, okay. So it was a rainy. It was mon- the Monday after Memorial Weekend. It was a rainy weekend, rainy night, and um, I didn't really want to go. I knew no one was going to be there. And as an actor, you just know when a theater is going to be full and when the theater is not going to be full. A lot of times I, I, I told people, you know, when people are going to go, when you would go somewhere. And yeah. if you prefer to be at home watching TV, you know that everyone else prefers to be at home watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and I performed and we had eight people in the house. Um, three people came to see her. Then, then it was my director. I hired a photographer <laughs> to shoot it. So that was five. And then there was three other souls there and god bless them i don't know why they were there but they came i performed the play and after i performed the play i got a standing ovation and the standing ovation wasn't the big deal what was the big deal then was the effect the play had on people the voice was getting louder and many people who were either connected to the military who were in the audience um, came up to me afterwards and they were saying, you know, that's a really powerful piece you're working on. You know, you should keep going because I think you're on to something. And then I had a a sister of a fallen Afghanistan veteran who had, he had gone to everlasting life. He had died in combat. Um, she said, you know, I lost my brother and I think what you're doing is very important. I hope you don't stop. And she was in tears. So me and my director got together. We, this place is called the Bowery Poetry Club. It's a beautiful, you know, poetry club in the lower east side of Manhattan. Um, it's been around for since the beat poet days in the 60s it's one of new york's lasting beacons of of old theater that's still left around and so we it has a bar so we sat at the bar and you know we were kind of just i was feeling really chuffed because i was able to get through it i performed the play and from as far as i've gotten to the play uh, i thought i was complete and he was like that was the first night that he got connected to the play Mm. and he said i'm interested in working more on this project if you're interested and i said yeah let's do it let's do it so we did you were listening to the authors podcast with me your host lisa newton you can email me lisa at lisanewton.co.uk and remember we have the inner circle which is for writers just like you and you can join us at writerbook.net crafted out for 45 minutes we were able to kind of funnel it out now that we have 45 minutes of it let's see if we can get it into a bigger festival so i had performed at the edinburgh fringe festival i don't know if you i'm sure you know the edinburgh fringe yes i do yes uh, funnily enough i've never actually been but i do i am I'm, I'm aware of that yeah so i performed at the edinburgh fringe festival i did it in 2005 as a with a different play and a different project and it was really successful at it and so my wife said let's go back to the fringe you know mm. and i said oh i don't know man it's, I, I'm taking an, an American material about American veterans to Scotland. I don't know if that's really <laughs> the right play for Scotland, you know. And uh, she was, oh, it'll be perfect. It'll be it, it'll perfect. They'll love it. And I was like, I don't know. And then I couldn't think of a name. You know, I had to think of a name. And then so I came up with this play, this name because out of frustration, I call it the American Soldier because I couldn't think of any other name. And I had all kinds of weird names. My wife says, look, you're, this play is about the American Soldiers. Just call it the American Soldier. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, and I was like, oh, my, this is great. So I'm going to go to Scotland perform as an American, perform the American soldier. I mean, like, how? I'm, I'm going to get into something with somebody down there. I know I am. <laughs> um, 
I, I was accepted to the Fringe. I was accepted to the, the Zoo Theater, a really beautiful space. And um, what I didn't realize is that many UK vets were also struggling with PTSD. Mm. And many families were struggling. And obviously, you know, the UK, all of the UK, Scotland and Ireland, took part in Afghanistan and Iraq. So when I performed the play, the first night I performed the play, if you, if for your audience who doesn't know about the Fringe, the Fringe has over, I mean, today it has over 3,500 plays there. So get an audience is really difficult because the audience has so much opportunity to see so many other things mm. and comedy does really well there. And, yes. and so a dramatic play that no one's ever heard about is really hard to get traction. You know, in theater, they always say, you know, if there's, if there's more people on stage than there is in the audience, you should shut down. But because <laughs> I was a man show, I could keep going. <laughs> so, so the first night we had three people there. The second night we had five people there, and so it's a three-week run. And by the third, by the by the end of the first week, we were half full, and the bus had gotten around about the plane, and it was touching. And what what happened was every time I would perform the play, mothers of UK and Scottish vets were coming up to me in tears, and they were sharing very similar stories that that woman did the year before at that rainy memorial night. And she was saying, you know, this is so important. I know this is the American story, but this is our story too. And then the reviewers came, and then I, start, I started to get four-star reviews. And then I guess the word got around to the, um, the girl named, I, forget, I think her name was Patricia, and she was, she, she was with the Amnesty International award, uh, uh, body, and she came and saw the play on, on the, the end of the first week. So on Facebook, I got this, um, you know, this congratulations by my director saying, so I'm very proud of Doug. He's been nominated for an Amnesty International award. And that was the first time I ever heard about it. So basically, out of 3,500 shows, they they shortlist 100 of them, um, and then they pick the winner out of, out of they pick three winners out of 100 shows. So the play, and if anybody knows about the Fringe, everyone walks around with this the Fringe magazine that tells you which plays are getting four star reviews and which plays are getting press. And so the Amnesty International Award mentioned my play, and so of course everyone who's all the theater goers who are going to see plays see that and they want to see those plays. Mm. They want to see all the four star plays and they want to see all the plays that have been that have been given, you know, positive press. Yes. And the word was gone around. So that very next day I was I had I was sold out and I had a line coming outside the theater. <laughs> How did that feel? It was amazing. And I remember to this day, the guy who was calling the lights, he was from, I think he was North London. He had a really heavy English accent. I mean, I just couldn't, super nice guy, but I could barely understand him. And I was preparing before the show and he kept saying, you have a, you have a line out, out, out you have a line outside, <laughs> you have a line. And I kept thinking, he said, you like, I'm missing a line like as, as an actor in the play. I go, what do you mean I'm missing a line? I, I, I'm not, I haven't started yet. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, no, bloke. You have a line outside your door. And and I so I walked outside from the theater and I looked down and there was literally there was 60 to 65 people waiting to get inside. And so we were sold out and the play took off. The play was that was the beginning of the play. And it got tons of social media press and, and everybody back here in the States was commenting on it. And it became this thing that. When I came back from Scotland, my director was like, well, now you really have a problem because now you have a successful play. 
And I go, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, it's going to be really hard for you to put this play down now because now it's got life. <laughs> and that that's what happened. Basically, somebody who worked in Houston, Texas, heard about the play and saw the play who I was connected with on Facebook and said, you should bring that play here. And I toured it in Houston. And that began the, that was five, that was six years ago almost now. And that's, that began, that began the touring of the play. Wow. And people would refer to different theaters and people started referring it to the Kennedy center. And there's an important lesson. Someone said, you should contact the Kennedy center because I think they should know. I think they should know about this play. This play is very important. You know, and people who don't know about the Kennedy Center, the Kennedy Center is a very prestigious um, performance center in, in Washington, D.C. It's, it's very a, elite, probably the only word I can think of it. It's the best way to describe it. And um, the, the, to give you perspective, it's like someone telling you, you should contact Parliament. Mm. Like, who do you who do you contact Parliament first? Like, you know, what per, which person is going to tell you, call back, just write a letter. We'll get back to you. So uh, I just started doing research again. I was really good with the research by then already. And so I found a number and I contacted the number and I said, you know, this is what I've been doing. I was told that I should reach out to you. And, and she goes, yeah, yeah, it sounds really interesting. Why don't you send me your material? And, you know, right now we don't really have any openings right now, but um, yeah, get back to me in a couple months. Another important lesson for everybody is always follow through on everything. Yeah. Uh, because even when you, sometimes as, as, as humans, we tend to, we overanalyze the information we get from somebody else, and we really don't know the story that's why they're giving that information. At least as artists, you start, oh, she wasn't really interested. Oh, she thinks the play is really good. She doesn't really like me. She didn't like my voice. She probably thinks she hates me. She, she's probably mad at you why you didn't call me. I should never <laughs> call her again. Okay, I, I'm depressed now. Uh, you know, and, and you spin yourself into these weird stories, right? Yeah. You run yourself ragged and don't really know that when she said, you know, I'm busy right now. Just call me back in a couple months. Really, what she meant is, I'm busy right now. Just call me back in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> Something really simple. And so, mm. I was terrified to pick up the phone and call her again. I sent her. You know, I had sent her my materials. I said I would. She goes, Yeah. How is January twenty second? Can you do it? And I was like, uh, uh, Yeah, I can do. It. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. And I hung up the phone, and I remember I called my wife and said, you're not going to believe this. The, the Kennedy Center says they want me to do the play for, for them on inauguration weekend. This is when Trump got inaugurated. Um, so it was a madhouse. I mean, D.C. was – and then there was a huge women's – I think it was – it was, I want to say women's right, but it was, there was a huge women female march mm. regarding against Trump coming to D.C. And buses were coming from all over the country. So D.C. was like a madhouse. All the hotels were booked. It was just crazy. I mean – it's always crazy doing a presidential inauguration, but that Trump inauguration was really intense. You know, I overcame my fear of picking up the phone and calling the Kennedy Center, and I got the opportunity. And, you know, again, another – you just need one yes. Absolutely. How much notice was that, roughly? Can, can you remember for when she said, yeah, sure? It was, it was less – it was about six months only. Okay. Yeah, when I finally when I called, I had done Houston. I had done I had done two tour dates. I did Houston, and then I performed it in New Jersey, here in New Jersey. And so and that's and someone who in the audience said, you know, you know. Also at this time, I really had my sea legs with the play, so to say. You know, I had performed it for already a couple of times, and I was in Scotland. Done. I did it for uh, seven days a week for three weeks. You know, so I was mm -hmm. really honed in with the material now mm -hmm. and. 
and how I was pre presenting it. So I was really connecting with the stuff. And mm. someone said, you know, you got to contact the Kennedy Center. Um, I, I know they would they would want this play there. So I think it was six months when I called them and they said, yeah, can you do they gave me two dates now that I remember. That's right. They gave me my birthday and then they gave me um, inauguration day, which I can't remember what day it was. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do my birthday. Cause I thought birthday was was a Sunday. Mm. So let me do a different day. And she said, you know, it really doesn't matter what day you pick. You know, we have a pretty good subscriber base here. I mean, mm. we're, we're always pretty full anyway. So you pick your best day. And I, did, I wasn't thinking about inauguration. I, I, I just was picking a different day besides my birthday. birthday. Yeah. And then I later when it was too far to change the date, I realized, holy crap, I just got a date. You are listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like, and share this channel. But, you know, it turned out to be a really good thing because everyone was, uh, everyone had an American fever to them, whether you were for or against Trump. Mm. Everyone was, wanted to say something powerful American, right? So the play, mm. so we had 350 people that day. Oh. Yeah, and the play was a roaring success. And then, it, and you know, then once the, you know, once the play had the Kennedy Center resume cred, mm. it was much easier to get referred out. You know, and then people started talking about the play. And, and then whenever I would say, I just got back from the Kennedy Center, I was immediately booked. <laughs> it, it went from a point where no one would say yes to I was basically subbing in for someone who dropped out of a festival on a rainy Memorial weekend to the point where the Kennedy center was now, mm -hmm. uh, was my backing. So I think it's really important for everybody who's listening to this. You know, if you're creating something, just create something and just start sharing it with people. Yeah. And, and ignore the no's. You just need one. Yes. Yeah. It's oh, very, well. very inspiring because, um, I'm sure there's people out there that, uh, uh, maybe just at the idea stage where they've got a, an inkling for an idea and they're just not quite sure in which direction to take it. I just want to take you back, though, when you first did your, your playwriting classes, were those classes very full and did you find it a, a useful process to be in those classes? Not really, but it, it's never the process that's helpful. It's where it points you that is very helpful. Because without that one class that I took, I would have never realized that what I really had was a one-man show. So, I mean, there was some value that I took out of there, you know. I mean, there's a couple, you know, tactical things like always, you know, when you write your play, always make sure you end on an uplift. Don't be a Debbie Downer, so to say, in the play. Um, you want to lend an uplift. You want to give hope to the play. I mean, that was the playwright's point of view. Uh, every playwright has a different point of view. But his was like, you know, give the audience something to walk away with. So I took that tactically, but it, it was really the the direction that it pointed me in. And that's what a lot of times it's OK to go in a direction that you think is not going to be very fruitful and you don't think it's fruitful, but it actually points you in a direct. It gives you feedback in a direction that you can go in. And that is usually way more valuable than anything tactically that you're going to get from a class. And, and then from there, I didn't mention that because once I knew that it was a one man show, I did take a one-man show workshop, right? Because I said, okay, well, it's not going to be a play, a multiple, multiple character play. Let me do it as a, um, you know, as a solo show. So mm -hmm. let, me, let me take a solo show workshop 
and, you know, find out what that means. You know, what does it mean to do a play by yourself? And within that workshop, I got other, you know, you start getting more feedback, right? You know, you, I realized what material was working, what material wasn't working. And what was really important about that class is it always gave you a deadline. It was very similar to what my director did for me when let's do this for, you know, I'd like to do this again with you. And he said, well, book, go ahead and book a space because if you don't book a space, you'll never do it. And so in this solo show workshop, every week you had to get up and perform something that you had done the week before. So they would give you a task. You had to go research and you had to you don't have to be off book, but you had to perform it. Um, and that was a really powerful thing, because that means you were constantly building the you're always adding to the foundation, so to say. You weren't just you can get really when you're creating something, it's very subjective. You can get really lost. And, oh, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's not ready yet. I don't know. It's not really ready yet. And that's a horrible place to be in when you're creating something, because the thing that I've learned in, in creating now two plays, one commissioned by the Library of Congress and writing a TV series and writing is that what's really important is for you to do the project and not to judge it. It's never our job to judge it. It's everyone else's job to judge it. If you focus on what you create through how you judge it, you'll never create it because you're always your worst critic and you'll always you'll always find something wrong with it. And there always will be something wrong with it. And, and But I think it's true in business and anything else you create. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And your job is just to create it. Let others judge it. And then you can take feedback from that, right? You can take feedback from that. You can be open and flexible to take that feedback. But don't be paralyzed by an overanalyzing. You know, the, you know, the cliche phrases, you know, paralysis by analysis. Yes, and yes. You, and you can, it's easy to get stuck in there, you know, you, you, I'm, oh, I'm too nervous. You're almost better off presenting something that is absolutely horrific because when I first would perform it, it was really bad. I was bad with it. I mean, it was just, really bad. I mean, I, I would owe people money if I charged them to come into that space. <laughs> um, but I, I started to learn what was working and what wasn't working. And yes. that was really valuable. Yeah. Um, and that was a really important lesson. So I think taking the works, taking the classes, I don't know if they necessarily, you know, where they, you know, like they weren't the answer, but they were the inspiration to point me in the right direction. Absolutely. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like and share this channel. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Douglas Terrell, who's the creator of the critically acclaimed play, The American Soldier. And he was commissioned by the Library of Congress to write his second play, An American Soldier's Journey Home, to commemorate the ending of World War One. And recently wrote and directed and produced his TV web series, Landing Home. So... The second play, then, The American Soldier's Journey Home, is that a one-man show as yeah. well? Yeah. Yeah, so that became, so la 2018 was the 100-year anniversary of the ending of the First World War. Yeah. It was, a it was the, the centennial of the armistice. Mm -hmm. And um, so the Library of Congress had, at this time, this was 2017 when they reached out to me. So I had performed probably... I'm guessing here, but I've been to, I don't know, seven cities already, you know, so, I'd, you know, I was getting some a footprint on the social media. In fact, when she contacted me, I go, how did you find me? Can I ask? She goes, well, I look for American plays that honor the revolution and your play kept coming up. Mm. So I said, oh, that's interesting. Because basically, when you go to my website, it says the American soldier 
it's a play based on a based on letters written by veterans and their family members from the American Revolution all the way through Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's how she found me. So she said, you know, we're, we're trying to do this big thing for the uh, for the armistice of the Library of Congress. We we're wondering if you'd be interested in adding some World War One letters to your play. And I say it really doesn't work that way. You know, <laughs> you can't the play is kind of baked already, so to say. Um, you can't just you're not just adding a coat of paint to it or something. You know, you have yeah, there's you know, we have lights. You're talking about a complete deconstruction. So, yeah. so then she, she said, well, would you be willing to write a play for us? And I was like, oh, my God, uh, I was like, it only took me six years to you know, get this thing done. So, um, but then, my, you know, again, my wife said, you know, listen, if the Library of Congress tells you to write a play. You write a play. Yes, right. <laughs> so um, I said, yes. I, I, and so they sent me like six diaries of uh, veteran American veterans who fought in the First World War. And um, it's a really powerful story that comes out of it. But uh, some of them weren't written. I mean, weren't typed out. Were just literally like actual PDFs of diaries, which were really hard to read. And there was just one diary that I started to read. And the soldier was Irving Greenwald. He was a Hungarian Jew. His daughter and granddaughter in in the fifties decided to type out his diary. And then they had donated it to the Library of Congress. And so it was the only diary that I started reading that it was digitized. And so it was great for me because I had developed a system already how to create a play. Um, you know, with the American soldier, I was really rough with it. And, and I started creating a color coding system. What I learned from, the, you know, all the mistakes I made in the American soldier was, OK, immediately you read something that you like it. You have to give it a color, a color code or a number of grading, like basically awesome, good, bad. Uh, mm. Best way to describe it. And so I had three color codings. I had green, orange and red. And you can see if you go to my website, you can see I have I have a blog post about it. So I, I get this. I had this diary, this digitized diary, and I started reading it. And it was the gentleman was unbelievably eloquent. It was it was just breathtaking to read his story. He was, you know, a Hungarian Jew. And he when the First World War started, you know, America was really we were really discriminatory towards the, the Jewish uh, community here in America. And people some of the stuff you read about history just blows your mind. But people actually thought the Jews had horns. Uh, I mean, like, it's just stuff that you couldn't make up today, you know, just mm. ridiculous stuff. Um, so I said, you know, I found the diary. <laughs> I said, like, I said, this is the diary I want to do. And So you say he, he was a Hungarian Jew, but yeah. he was... Um... Yeah, well, his parents were Hungarian Jew. He was born in, in New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but, and, and the Jewish community back then, they stuck really close together because they were basically immigrants, right? Yeah. Um, and they wanted to prove themselves, which is the story of America. Because I should also say that in my play, I play African-American characters, I play Southern characters, I play white, I play females. It, the American soldier is a mosaic of what's made the American soldier. Mm. In, in my research, when I was creating the American soldier, I realized that, uh, you know, in, in the, during the First World War, a lot of these communities, they stuck together because uh, they were outcasts by the rest of society. Uh, Italians, Irish, African-American. I mean, and a lot of people chose to fight in the First World War because they thought that would give them that would that would give their community a recognition by the rest of America. And in some cases it was true. In some cases it wasn't. Um, it definitely wasn't true with the African-American community. But many people signed up to fight and Jews and Africans and African-Americans and, and, and Irish and Italians. All, every immigrant, every, every outcast of, that was part of the American fabric decided to go fight. They thought, if I go fight now, then 
when I come back, I'll be given, I'll be treated as an equal. Um, his story was fascinating to me. And I, I thought, yeah, I'll, this is, the, this is the story that I want to tell. And so I would read it. And so anything that I read was really interesting. I would color it right away. And I was able, because it was digitized, I was able to, to upload it to a Kindle. And that was a huge benefit, right? So now I wasn't Xeroxing. Now I had it in Kindle. And so now I can actually export sections of it. And so I can really file away what I really liked and what I didn't like. So I read this. I basically read this diary. I think I read it. It was 400 pages. I read it back to front nonstop. I read it in a period of, I think, two months, three months. I mean, I was racing to finish it because then I knew I just got to first I got to read it. And then I got to, you know, basically organize all the stuff that I like. And then I got to start putting writing it. And, and mm. so but I, I had been educated with the American soldier how I was going to do it already. And I kind of had a template, you know, mm. a beginning, a middle, a conflict and the end. So anyway, I'll just fast forward. But then I had color coded the whole diary and what I liked and what I didn't like and what was interesting. And then I exported that all the stuff that I really liked into a, a file. And then from there. I started breaking it up into the beginning of his life, the middle of his life, and the ending of his life. And then I put some a special section called, I call it death, um, where he was he fought in the trenches. He he was part of the Lost Battalion, which was a very famous American battalion that fought between and fought in France in the First World War. They were they were called the Lost Battalion because when the French had retreated, everyone thought the Americans had retreated with them, and they were stuck between the German artillery and American artillery, and no one knew where they were at. And the Germans and the Americans were bombing towards each other, but they were really landing on this on this battalion. And the casualty was intense. I think to, to date is one of the highest casualties any battalion has ever suffered in any American conflict. The death was they were they were stranded. They couldn't get food. They were running out of water. It, it was. It, there's been a movie done on it. Um, Ricky mm. Schroeder did it called Lost Battalion. But so his story was like obviously just crazy, captivating. And he was a runner. He was a very religious man as well, which was really fascinating. I don't think he ever killed anybody. So the way you communicated during the First World War is you either you send a pigeon up in the air that would take messages and snipers would try to kill those pigeons, or you would send six men out and hopefully the one would get through with the message. Because all radio wires were constantly being uh, destroyed by the shelling that was continually going on. So you couldn't communicate through radio. And, and also everyone was terrified of people tapping into other people's radio lines and stealing information. So he was a runner. Anyhow, in, in the play, I should share that he talks about his whole goal was wanting to see his unborn child. His wife was pregnant when he got shipped off. And his, he kept praying. And within the diary, he kept you know saying, I, I just pray that I can see my child before hold my child before I am shipped off. And he wasn't, and he was shipped off. And then when he was over in England and France and he landed, he, he took a ship over into England and then they took the train over into France and then they fought in France. And when he was over there, he constantly talked about making it alive to see his, his baby child. He finally makes it alive. He suffers a tremendous wound. And the, his daughter, who was named as, his wife was Leah and his little girl's name was Cecily. He talks about Cecily all the time in the diary. And so... This was 19, uh, 1917 when he wrote this diary and finished it in 1918. And when I performed it at the Library of Congress, so I knew, obviously, I knew the name Leah and Cecily really well. Obviously, mm -hmm. when I performed it in 2018 for Veterans Day, which was the 100 year mark, you know, Lee, he had passed away, obviously, and, mm -hmm. and Leah had, his wife had passed away. 
But his daughter was 97 years old, and she was at the performance. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And if you go to the, again, my website, you'll see a picture of me hugging her. She was in a wheelchair, and she was there with her grandchildren. It was a very emotional moment Mm -hmm. uh, for me to see her in flesh and bone. Mm -hmm. And I remember when the the curators of the Library of Congress said, we just want to let you know that I think um, Cecily is going to be here with her family. I was... One part of me was excited, and the other part was terrified. Now, now I'm like, she's going to be judging me how I tell her father's story. You know, I mean, mm. is this going to be any good? Is she going to be like, what a waste, what a joke? Or <laughs> again, you always start spinning yourself in these war- in these horrific, you know, negative stories. You know, mm, yeah. So I performed the play, and she was very kind, and she basically said I brought much honor to her father and her family. And then I performed that play again in, in Hoboken in New Jersey. Um, his grandson came with his family to see the play. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that's how that play came about. You were listening to The Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how, um, you know, stories can, can live on and, and be told um, through, through plays. I think all these stories are very important. I think, especially today with, you know, I mean, I'm 47, 48, I sound like a... <laughs> I, I, I used to walk in the snow with no shoes and no nothing, you know, and I got one meal a week. Uh, but it's true, though, you know, the younger generation and with social media and everything, they don't, you know, history is not as... People don't really understand history of any kind. And I think it's so critical for us as a human beings to understand our history because it allows us to understand where we're going in the future. And a lot of people, and I'm sure that's true globally, don't really know their history. I think that's a sad thing. And so getting an opportunity to do these plays the way I've been doing it and to tour the American soldier, the American soldier has been the lifeblood of what I've been doing recently. But I think a lot of people have told me that this is an important play for everybody to see. It reminds everybody of the commitment and sacrifice so many make. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you for sharing, Douglas. That's been that's been really really interesting. I feel uh, like you know, you've taken me on a journey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's been it's been great. You know, and, and when I wrote the TV series Landing Home, which is out to come out, mm-hmm. uh, it should be coming out pretty soon. Again, the lesson that I had learned producing a project from scratch really taught me right off the bat the way that I'm going to get this story done is um, is by to create. I needed to create a script right off the bat um, and with TV. I couldn't do an idea. And so I wrote a script and I was able to share the script with many different people and, and get funding for it. And so it, I think it's just for everyone to take away. It's really important for everyone to really understand if you, it's so important to create. I can't I tell everybody that you, especially when people come up to me and they ask me about production or producing and how can I create a play or how can I create a film or especially young actors, um, I say, you have to create a product. It's so much difficult to sell an idea than it is to sell a product. You know, you almost have to do the work for people for them to see what you're doing. And and don't worry if it's any good. You know, my writing is atrocious when I start. It's just, 
I mean, it's embarrassing. I have horrible grammar. I, uh, I, I miss, I am the king of misspelling, but that's not what's important. What's important is for you to get your thoughts on paper yeah. and then you can refine it. Yeah. And it sounds to me as though you, you did do a lot of refining. So each time it was tweaked, feedback yeah. was given, yeah. you improve upon it, you perform it again, you listen to feedback, you, you make more improvements and, and that's how the end product gets to be as good as it is and you get your stand innovations. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, you just have to really, it's exactly what you said. It's just by having that product, you're allowed to kind of sharpen the stone or, or polish the stone, you know, but if you don't ever create the stone, you can't make the, the, the David out of it or the Moses out of it. You know, you have to start with a piece of rock and you have to start basically chipping away at it. But a lot of times people get so focused and I was guilty of that in the very beginning, you get so stuck in like I wanted to create this amazing veteran project, but I couldn't focus on the first step, you know, that, you know, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with that first step. And if you could just focus on creating something and showing it to people and getting people's feedback and they say, uh, even when they say, you know, this is horrible, it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Say, thank you so much for your feedback. Do you know anybody who might be interested in this? Thing? <laughs> and he goes, you know. And you be and I and I, I say that and people like don't really understand like you will get a referral. Someone will say, you know, sure, I I know someone who is dumb enough to do something like that. <laughs> you should reach this person. Here here's her contact information. I bet they'll be into it. You know, and then you're like, and then you reach out to one person and they're like, oh, I love this idea. Creating that first product, that first step, that first manuscript, that first draft. Is all that matters, not the spelling, not the grammar, not if it's even any good. Don't even judge it. And then just perform it or write it, you know, start getting feedback from it. Be really courageous on sharing it with people. And, you know, some of the tactical things that I would always do to work on it is I, I always woke up early in the morning to do it. I, I think that was one of the with all my projects. I woke up super early in the morning because it's, to me, it was much easier to write when everyone else was asleep it's really hard to get in a creative zone when emails and texts and phone calls and mm. ups and the buzzer and the door and the construction mm. i mean it's just like everyone's coming at you at all times of the day that it it, it you, you need to use momentum right and so a lot of times you can't build any momentum when you're being interrupted all the time. And so if mm. I would get up at 445, I would have my laptop open, I'd have my coffee made already, and I would immediately have a cup of coffee. And I would, you know, I would write the idea that I wanted to work on in the morning before I went to bed. So it would feed my subconscious. So when I stood mm. up, I wasn't starting from zero. Mm. And there were mornings where I, I, I stared at the laptop. I mean, I just stared at it, just like, and, and it's brutal. I mean, it's absolutely brutal feeling to stare at a laptop when nothing is coming out. But by grinding away and squeezing and looking at a laptop, the next day gets easier. Yeah, no, I, I like that routine. I'm, I think I'm a, uh, I have a, a similar routine, and I'm a, I'm not a, a great fan of working in the morning. However, I do appreciate when there is silence and you can you know you're not interrupted and I do have to switch things off and turn turn down over things that are popping up on the screen and stuff yeah. just to really focus and and get down because once you are interrupted it's so it, hard to get yeah 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 it's just like it's it's like it's almost like 
getting up top of a hill and then boom, going all the way. It's like playing. You, you're, mm. you guys in the, in the UK, you ever play the game Sorry? No, I don't know. Or Shoots and Ladders? Yeah, Snakes and Ladders, yeah. Yeah, like Shoots and, yeah, shoots and Ladders. You go all the way to, you go all the way back. <laughs> as soon as the phone rings, the UPS, you know, and like there's been times when I would say, oh, I'm kind of tired. I'm going to work in the afternoon. I'll be like getting in a rhythm. And then all of a sudden, like my wife would say, you know, you, you got to go. Um, the elevator people are coming. You have to go answer the door. Um, and then, or, or, you know, you have to answer an important other email that you have to get into. And then all of a sudden you've lost your momentum. Right. And it's, it's a really fragile thing to understand. I, for people who, when you're creating something, you should really put yourself in the best opportunity to succeed. Um, and so I, I always, and always finding ending spot, you know, I, I, I told myself in the beginning, I, I would wear myself thin trying to write at night, morning and night to kind of get it done. But I realized all I was doing, it was stressing out and I was just, I was killing my creative juices that it was much more, I was much more creative when after the morning I said I was done with it. Right. And I moved on with my life. I didn't grind and grind all day long because when you grind all day long, you start burning out. Mm. And, and I think that's another useful tip, as, as you say, particularly as you, you know, you say creative juices, you know, give yourself a chance to recharge. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it, Lisa. You got you got to recharge because because you're you know you're kind of whistling in the dark, so to say, you know, and and so you know you you, you have to, you just have to understand that it is a hard process, and and if it was easy, everyone would write yep. or create. It's not. You know, it's the reason why people don't do it. You know? <laughs> and so, are you? Final question, I promise. Like, are you yeah. working on anything at the moment? What's keeping you busy at the moment? Well, the play. Um, so I'm in post-production for the TV series Landing Home. You can go to the website and sign up for it and see it. It's going to be hopefully distributed on different platforms. It's based on a veteran coming back and having trouble to adjust. And I'm touring the play. I In November, I go to Boston and then I go to um, back to the Kennedy Center. And then I head out to um, Chicago and then I head out potentially in L.A. And I've got some other bookings coming up. So that pretty much has me pretty full. So for the listeners out there, you can find out more about Douglas on his website, douglasturrell.com. And Torell is spelled T-A-U-R-E-L.com. And for the websites, it's www.theamericansoldiersoloshow.com. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. It's been great talking to you, Douglas. It's been an honor. Thank you. I really appreciate you allowing me to share my story. It's been very interesting. Thank you. And so, listeners, there you have it. We've interviewed our first playwright, and and that just gives you an outline of the the way we have to go about doing things, the research, not being scared to put on a, a show and to get feedback and to not take any no's personally or as a final but to always ask people okay so it might not be for you but do you know of anyone so until the next time thank you very much for tuning in and this is lisa newton your host you have been listening to the author's podcast with lisa newton sponsored by boogles limited tweet the show at boogles underscore books spelled b-o-o-g-l-e-z underscore books you can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.co.uk and if you want to join our authors community join the inner circle at www.com 
writeabook.net. You have just been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.